Would you join me in Romans chapter 5? That's new. We've been saying Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, and 4 for a while. This morning, chapter 5. And uh, it'll take us just a few minutes before we'll actually read the text. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Okay? How is your attention level when someone that you know is going on a trip? You ever been there? They're going on a trip. I'm kind of specifically thinking if they have... Uh, a, a flight that's involved, some airline, and especially if they have like some layovers. Have you ever been there? They're kind of saying, and they're excited about the trip, and you're excited for them, but you know they're going from here to here, but they're going to give you kind of, they got the layover in Cincinnati, or driving to Charlotte, and then the layover in Cincinnati, and then we fly to here, and then we'll take a short flight, and they're going over all What's your attention level on those details? I don't know how you are. Uh, I find that Unless I'm heavily vested in the person, I'm not logging all of that. Uh, I'm happy for you. And if it's my trip, man, I'm, I want to know the details. What's going to happen to me, I want to know. But, you know, it's not my trip. Like yesterday, my brother, I think yesterday, flew back from San Francisco. I know he flew back from San Francisco, right? My mom probably tracked him on the computer at every stop along the way, seeing where he had delays and all those things. Doesn't mean she loves him. Maybe she loves him more than I do. Maybe it is what it is. I do love my brother. I'm looking forward to spending some time with him this week. Um, You say, why are you talking about that? The Bible says all Scripture is inspired of God. That means every part of the Bible, God breathed it out. These are his words. And the Bible says it is all profitable. It's all inspired. It's all profitable. But I just want to be honest with you, okay? My personal reading uh, the last couple of weeks, last, kind of last week, had me in Joshua. Joshua's a great book. Uh, chapters 1 through 12, man, they're children of Israel. They cross the Jordan. They're going in. They're conquering the land. They're having these victories. A little setback here and there. And they didn't completely do everything they were supposed to do. But, man, it was just wave after victory after victory. It was great. I said that about the inspiration of Scripture because I'm going to tell you, Joshua 13, chapter 13 through chapter 21, um, is profitable, but it's not the most edifying section of Scripture for me. You say, what's going on in those chapters? That's all the land allotments, the tribal land allotments. So the tribe of Zebulun is going to have this section of land, and it's going to go from this... And they don't even have the same names that they have by the end of the Old Testament. So they have all these different names, and these are all the cities that are in the tribe of Zebulun, and here's the tribe of Dan and Naphtali and, and Manasseh, and it's like, that's for from chapter 13 to 21. It's the Word of God. It is profitable... It's just not nearly as edifying to me as it would have been to the tribes of Israel when they first heard that read. Now, that's different. Why? Because that means where are we going to live? How much space do we get? How many cities do we get? What's our area? Who's still there? What, What do we still have to do? What's ours? Man, they were in tune. It meant everything to them. I mention that because as we head into Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, we're going to lump that as its own group of chapters, your attention level will be in direct proportion to how much you think the truths in those chapters apply to your life. If you're kind of just 
kind of secondhand over here looking on the scriptures. That's a nice story. You'll kind of listen a little bit. But if you honestly believe this is your life and it's describing you and what's available to you, you will probably perk up like, hey, shh, be quiet. I need to listen. To this. this is important. And you'll be, in, you'll be focused. You'll be engaged. Today we kick off a new section of the book of Romans. Uh, kind of the third. We had an introduction. And then we had the first most of the first chapter and then all of the second chapter and most of the third chapter kind of dealt with this main theme. By the way, it was kind of hard to go through. It was kind of hard for me to preach through, but we made it through it. Remember that? Is how all of us are sinners. All of us. You got those wicked, vile pagans and there's all these descriptions of sins in chapter one and we could all look at that and like, ooh, wow, that's terrible. Yeah, there are people that really do that. But then we kind of get to chapter two and the people who are kind of moral, uh-oh, they're convicted, they sin as well. And even the religious, you know, we're all brought in and even the Jews brought in so that ultimately, literally, all of us are sinners who've offended a holy God. That's why we need to be saved. But then as we got to the next section where we just finished, we came to the good news finally. And it didn't feel like we were going to get there, but we finally got there. Here's the good news. God still loves us even though... He didn't love our sin, but he loved us enough. He says, you have to have righteousness to go to heaven. You have to have righteousness to live with God forever. And God made some laws. He said, I will give you righteousness. So we don't have any. You're just going to give us righteousness. Yes, if you do one thing, you have to believe my promise that what my son did on the cross counts for your sin and it was sufficient to pay for your sin if you'll believe that then I will not necessarily make you righteous but I will give you his righteousness in your column that had none and in essence God says I'll declare you righteous you heard Deanna use the word justification a few minutes ago you're going to read that in a moment God declares us righteous he starts treating us as righteous if we put our faith in Jesus now that's the qualifier Chapter 5 through 8 begins a new section as it begins to detail the benefits of that justification. And that's where we're heading into. So with that, and I think you've got that on your notes. So if you want to follow along this morning on your handout. Now, just before we read the text, I want to give you an assignment. Here's your assignment, okay? In your mind, put all of mankind. In fact, I'm going to say not only all of us. Here's your assignment. Put every human being who's ever lived except Jesus. I'm not going to count him. Every human being who's ever lived, put them in two categories in your mind. Only two categories, not three, not one. Put them in two categories. You got it? You're like, got it. Male and female. Good. You put us in two categories. Is there any gray lines there? Uh, in the day and age, we live, well, did, is, are we talking about how they started or where they're at? Okay, that, that one can get a little fuzzy. That's not the cleanest, most accurate way to put all, of, all mankind into two groups. Not trying to get political or anything, but just, just saying, there's some gray areas there. You say, well, Jews and Gentiles. Oh, good, that's true. There's two qualifications. The Bible makes two groups of people. One's very, very small, and the other one's very, very large. I'm in the Gentile category. The only thing is, what about those people that are kind of Samaritan, half Jew, half Gentile? Or what about those who have Jewish blood, but they don't have the Jewish religion? What about, what about those who don't have Je- Jewish blood, but they've taken on the Jewish religion? So that line kind of gets grayed. And then some of you some of you have already come up with this. You're like, okay, male, female, Jew, Gentile. I got one. 
dead and alive, right? Dead and alive, okay, good. But I would propose that line could be a little gray because are all of those who died, are they really dead? Or are they, some of them, living more than they've ever lived before? And those that we say, well, look, they're alive, and they're here in the auditorium this morning. Are there some that are physically alive but are partially dead still? Yeah, so that one. You say, well, Jeff, how would you, the most accurate, most clean way, put every person who's ever lived into only two groups? You know where I'm headed, right? It's this. It's this auditorium right here, in this room right now. Only two groups, saved, unsaved, no exceptions. Let that sink in. You are either saved, a believer in Christ, one who's been justified, declared righteous, or you are an unbeliever. You may become a believer later, but as you stand right now, you're an unbeliever. There's only two kind of people, I promise you, there are both in the room this morning. You say, is that important? Which category you're in totally determines your experience of existence. You will have a completely different experience of existence. Let me first state the obvious. I, I wish I could only say half of this was true, but what I'm about to say, both parts, you don't get to say, well, I like the one side, I don't like the other. Here's a fact of Scripture in the Bible, the Word of God. It is always true. Here's what Scripture says. All Christians will live... In eternity, for eternity, in heaven with God. That's a fact. All the saved, all the believers in Christ, eternally in heaven with God. All the unsaved, if that is you and you stay in that category, all of the unsaved, I wish it wasn't true, and I don't say this gleefully, they will spend eternity in Torments, And I don't mean just kind of lonely and in some pain and discomfort. I mean every second, every moment in torments eternally in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. And that distinction means everything. And that's why you should put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now with that in mind, we're getting ready to go read chapter 5. This morning we'll read verses 1 through 5. We're only really going to look at the first couple of verses I just said, all mankind, two groups, two very different experiences in eternity. But what we're about to read, guys, is actually going to show you the difference, not just in eternity, but there's a difference of experience for the saved and the unsaved in this life, right now. Total different experience of life. Would you look at verses 1 through 5 with me? Coming off of how we get saved and why we need to be saved, now we're in a new section, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, that's our cue, brand new section. Therefore, since, and I don't know if the word since, I think it means because, or it could mean from the time, but I think it means probably more, and it would really be both, but I think it's because since we have been, since we, whoever the saved are, we can't tell by looking externally, but if you're a Christian this morning, this describes your life. Since we have been, it's past, it's finished, it's a one-time event in the past. Now listen to that carefully. It's a one-time event in the past with continuous results. Since we have been justified, declared righteous how, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. 
Through him we have also, that's an important word, also obtained, not achieved, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That sounds totally opposite, counterintuitive. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How? Knowing. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't know if you noticed them but I I dare say if you, you read that ten times and I said pick out six primary benefits that the justified have in this life, you would spot them very easily. You'd at least see five out of the six. You say, are we preaching on all six today? I thought at the beginning of the week I was, and it was driving me crazy. And Thursday afternoon about 1 o'clock, I was like, okay, this is madness. There's no way we're going to be able to do six things on Sunday morning. Three will keep us plenty busy. So today we're going to focus on verses 1 and 2. Write this down, verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified... So what's justification do for me in this life? Does it help me? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The justified have peace with God. Peace with God. Peace with God. Here, taste it. Peace with God. Peace with God is not just a tranquil feeling. You say, right, peace. Oh, I have have the peace of God in my heart. There is a peace of God. There's a peace from God. God is called the God of peace. That is not what this is talking about. Please understand, peace with God is not a tranquil feeling that can come. Oh, I have it. Oh, no, I don't feel it right now. that's That's not what we're talking about. Peace with God is either a fact of a person's life or it is a not a fact. It's objective. It's not subjective. Well, I kind of think... That's not peace with God. I need you to ask yourself a question and answer it. I'm going to ask you, answer inside. Here's the question. The question is not, do I feel peace with God? That's not the question. Here's the question. Are God and I at peace? Ask that right now. Are God and I at peace? Am I at peace with God? Are you? I'm not asking if you feel at peace with God. Are you and God at peace with one another? And here's the second part of that question. Do I have a Bible reason why I think God and I are at peace with each other? Unfortunately, plenty of unbelievers, and I mean plenty, and I dare say most unbelievers feel perfectly at peace in their heart. They are not all uptight. They're not worried at all about their upcoming day with God. Honestly, I just described most people in America. They have a concept. Do you believe there's a God? Yeah, there's a God. Do you think you'll ever see him? I kind of do. I kind of think I will. Does that bother you? And they're literally, they're living their life. They live here in America where we have billions of Bibles. They'll, They'll 
really, they probably have one at the house. They're not going to open the Bible. It's Sunday morning. They're not in the house of God. And they're just living life kind of thinking, yeah, one day I'll kind of, I'll see God and I'll probably meet him and maybe there'll be a judgment. They don't even know enough to be worried. They're not scared. They're just kind of living life. MacArthur writes the following, and I think he's very accurate. He says, quote, most unsaved people do not think of themselves as enemies of God. I mean, I'm, I'm peaceful with God. We're on good terms. They don't think of themselves as enemies of God. Why? He writes, because they have no conscious feelings of hatred for him. By the way, some people do. Some people are like, I, I hate God. And they would say, yes, I'm his enemy. But most people, they don't think conscious thoughts of hatred or he says they do not actively oppose his work. Nobody's picketing out front, I don't think, right? They don't actively contradict his word. Now, there are some people who literally go around the country having these little sessions and debates or they're constantly on the, script, on, on the internet and they're going to be in chat rooms and they're going to be doing it this afternoon and they're boom, boom, boom and they're actively opposing the work of God and they say, yeah, I'm an enemy of God, but that's not most people. In fact, he concludes the thought, he says, most consider themselves at worst to be neutral with God. But no such neutrality is possible. Look at verse number 9. You're in Romans 5. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Wrath of God? For what? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Did you catch verse 10? If while we were, wait, we were enemies of God? I'm not an enemy of God. Oh, yes. All of us come into this world enemies of God. You're like, why is that? Because of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Remember what it said? All people, write that down, all people commit acts of sin against God. And as a result, we set ourselves up as God's enemy. By the way, if you don't want to be, if, if you have enemies, you may say, well, I kind of got an enemy and her name's this or his name's that. Or it's that family over there and the Hatfields and you're the McCoys, and, right? We're enemies. And can I tell you something? There's one person you don't want to be your enemy, but you came into this world at enmity with God. Why? Because our nature our nature loves what God can't tolerate. What God finds to be sickening, we love it. You love sin. We live in a land, in a world of sinful people. We're right in the middle of it. Your pastor has a sin nature, commits acts of sin. Plenty before I got saved and too many since I've got saved. We love it. But it's not only that. Okay, yeah, we kind of break God's laws. No, we hear God's laws. We read them in the word of God. Even the people who don't have them read in the word of God, they've never seen a Bible. They have God's laws and rules, many of them stamped on their being. And yet we still just trample on them by breaking our conscience. We do it all the time. We trample on God's laws. We set ourselves up as his enemies. Go, if you would, back to chapter 2, just for a moment. Chapter 2, I referred to this a little bit ago. So God is at enmity with us because of our sin, but you wouldn't always know it. Romans 1 said, The wrath of God is poured out against the unrighteousness of men who suppress and hold down the truth of God. Wrath of God? Why? Chapter number 2, 
Look at verse number 3. Do you suppose, old man... So we read chapter 1 and we look at that list of sins at the end of it and we're like, man, that is terrible and that's bad and boy, I'm glad I'm not as bad as them. Verse 3, do you suppose, old man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? Catch what this says. You say, well, I haven't done all of those. If you have ever one time in your life seen somebody do something and you recognize that as wrong, then you just proved you have the ability to spot sin. And if we can spot it in other people, how much more so should we be able to spot it in ourselves? And so Paul says, do you really think? Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume, remember when we talked about this verse, we talked about people that go out on ice and sometimes they'll even go on thin ice and hear it cracking. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and there's the word do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and his patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance but because of your hard and impenitent I'm not going to repent impenitent heart you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed it will be revealed Here's what I find is very unfortunate. Here's the good news. God has enacted a time of forbearance. You say, what is this forbearance? Remind me again. Remember, there's this war between God and us. God is all-powerful. We're very fragile. We're going to lose, but God doesn't want to just lower the, the, the hammer on us and, and just destroy us and send us to hell immediately. So he's called a truce, and that truce is for a period of time, a time of patience that's to allow us to repent. So he's actually kind to us. Here's the unfortunate thing. Many people misinterpret God's withholding of judgment. Here it is. I sinned. Yeah, I thought God was against sin. I'm doing fine. My kids are healthy. The house is great. Got plenty of cars. Got a good job. Again, we're all healthy. Everything's good. Food still tastes good. I did it. Nothing seemed to happen. God's okay with my sin. And that's the misinterpretation. Somehow God's fine with our sin. But what Paul is trying to tell us is God's forbearance, that truce, is set up for a time period to allow us to repent. And if we don't repent, we will face the judgment of God because God hates our sin far more than we know. So here's the problem. We come into this world at enmity, enemies of God. What causes it? Sin. Here's the only hope. Only hope. The only hope to be at peace with God is one thing. The sin has to be removed. Thankfully, guys, that's what justification does. Justification removes the sin. How? God, in verse number 1, look at verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's talking about God's work as the great peacemaker. You're like, right, Jesus is a great peacekeeper. No, a peacekeeper is one that's like, whoa, they're mad at each other. I don't want to be part of that. I'm not getting involved. Or, hey, walk all over me like a doormat. I just like to keep the peace. That's a peacekeeper. Jesus was not a peacekeeper. Jesus is a peacemaker. A peacemaker goes between the two warring parties and usually gets hit from both sides, and that's what Jesus did. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, really it's the whole passage. I just pulled out two verses 
Because Jesus stepped between the warring party of God who was going to destroy us and mankind who's the enemy of God because of our sin. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. 700 years before he actually fulfilled this passage, it was predicted of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs. The verse before says Jesus is a man of sorrows. He's a man that knows pain. He's a man that's acquainted with grief. Why is he acquainted with grief? Grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. I read that and almost every time, that's not fair. Usually people wouldn't say, that's not fair. It's because we feel like we're getting a raw deal. That's not fair on Christ, but God made the rule. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We do the iniquity. We do the sinning. He's crushed. He's pierced. Notice this last line here. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You know that God made a law. Here's God's law. You sin, your sin has to be paid for. Your sin keeps you from God. It makes you an enemy of God. But there is hope. The sin can be removed. Here's God's law. Anyone who will hear the promise of God and hear what it says. You've got to hear about Jesus. You can't just believe in God and go to heaven. You have to hear about what Jesus did on the cross and believe that it was enough to pay for your sin. And God makes this wild promise. If you'll believe what Jesus did counts for you and trust it, then he'll take the sin away. And you are then declared righteous and justified. Back to Romans. Now look at verse number two. We find the second thing. The justified have access into grace. The justified have access into grace. Romans 5 verse 2. Coming off this idea we have peace with God. But now verse 2. Through him we have also obtained also. So it's not just getting saved. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Do you realize you were saved by grace? Everybody understand that? If you understand that, say amen. You're saved by grace. You say, well, hold on, Jeff. You told us just last week, you have to believe in Jesus or you will not go to heaven. Absolutely. You must have faith. You must believe. But your belief is nothing without the grace of God. We must have the grace of God. So here's what God says in verse number 2. Not only does the justified person have salvation, grace, they get to go to heaven, but we have access to additional grace. Why? It's not stated very clearly in the text, but I'm going to take this approach for the next few minutes. Okay? Why do we have access to grace? We have access to grace because we have access to God. We have access to God. Not everyone has access to God. Those of you that have kind of studied the Old Testament before, I want you to think, and by the way, I'm going to use the word specifically. Be as specific as you can be in your mind. Old Testament, where was the presence of God? And you say, well, God fills the universe. He's everywhere present. He fills this whole building. He's all around the world. True. But where in the Old Testament was the presence of God specially manifested? The special presence of God. If you wanted access to God, you would have to go there. You got kind of in your mind? You, you, are you specific? I want you to be more specific. If you're sitting there saying, right, Jerusalem. No, more specific. 
You're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The temple. No, more specific. The Holy of Holies. Could we even be more specific than the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. Have you heard that before? Let's go back two or 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago when the temple was built, tabernacle really would go back 3,500 years ago. 1445 B.C., God tells Moses to make this Ark of the Covenant. It's a box made out of wood. It's about this long, about that wide, and about that tall, and it's overlaid with gold, and it has a lid, and inside are the commandments, and, and some manna, just as representation. I don't know why it was saved, but it was there. And the high priest Aaron, his rod was stored inside. And then that lid would be, would be closed and again overlaid with gold. And on top of it there was these two angels that were formed. They had skilled artisans that would form these two angels. I don't know how close they were, but they would face each other. And I don't know what the cherubim looked like. But once they put that Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain and then removed back, if God was pleased with what was going on, God would bring his special presence called the Shekinah glory. And he would come between those two angels over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain in the most holy place called the Holy of Holies. In fact, that room was the most exclusive place in the entire planet. Think of that. Augusta National, can you go play there this afternoon if it weren't raining? You got a tea time? Gary, you ever had a tea time at Augusta National? You've watched the Masters there. You've never, I don't, I don't have you played there before? Not yet? You didn't even sneak a nine iron and kind of in your leg, but under shorts there, kind of, oh, no, this is, I just, just my brace, right? <laughs> Go out and get on number 13 and throw a ball out. You don't get to do that. It's exclusive. Do you know the Holy of Holies was the most, ex- hey, when only one person can go somewhere, that's exclusive. Only one man could go into the Holy of Holies. And that one man could only go on one day a year. And it wasn't just any time of the day. He would go in in a certain time of that one day. And he would only be in there for a little while. In fact, it was so reverent and holy and fearful. They would literally tie a rope around this man, the high priest, as he's in there doing what he needs to do to have God's favor on the nation and cover their sins for another year. But if he was not right with God and doing it the right way, he would be killed. Well, run in and get him. I'm not going in. You go get him. No one could go get him. So they had a rope. If they heard the bells on his robe stop making a noise and clanging and ringing, they'd have to pull him out because no one goes in there. Why? That's where God is. But the New Testament tells us something happened. Matthew chapter 27. Would you look at verse 50 on the screen? Have you ever read this? At 3 o'clock on that Friday afternoon when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Matthew doesn't tell us what he cried out, but the Bible says at 3 o'clock, and Jesus cried out again. We know, it says with a loud voice, we know that he was saying, it is finished, and then he yielded up his spirit, so he would have cried out twice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Watch verse 51. And behold, so Jesus is dying on a cross outside of Jerusalem, outside the gate, but inside the city gate, in fact, up on the temple mount, the Bible says, behold, the curtain of the temple. It's talking about the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. By the way, this isn't a little curtain like you have at home. This isn't even a drape like you have at home. This was being a very thick, super thick I mean, this, the noise of this happening would have been a thunderous noise. The Bible says, and behold, after he gave up the ghost and yielded his spirit, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the next verses talk about how there were people that were raised again. And they ended up walking around the city. A lot happened when Jesus died on the cross. This one, big deal. If we could go back 2,000 years ago and we were going to approach the temple, here's what we would find. It would be more and more exclusive the further in you went. There would have been a court of the Gentiles. If we were kind of Jewish but born Gentile, we can go in there. Hey, this is great. Let's keep going. No, you don't go past that because that gate has a sign over it in multiple languages. If Gentiles go beyond this point, you can and will be killed. You say, who can keep going? The Jewish women can keep going. What about even further in? Well, the Jewish women can't keep going past a certain point, but the Jewish men can keep going. What about further than that? Well, not just any of the Jewish males, only one out of 12. Those who were of the tribe of Levi. The Levites, they could keep going further in toward the temple. Okay, well, what about after that? Well, there was a point where not just any Levite could go. You had to be of the priestly tribe families, like three families. Not all of them, but like three families that were the priests. They could keep going, and they could do the work in the real inner part. And some of them, the highest ranking ones, could even go into the holy place and do the table of showbread and the, the altar of incense and the smoke that would billow and then this candle and keep the, the oil in there, keeping the candle going. But then there's the most holy place. There's a separation. You can't get to God. You don't have access to God. One person once a year. Jesus died on the cross and the, cro- and the curtain is torn in two. Take your Bible. Look with me if you would. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and you'll see the theological ramifications of what we just read. What does it mean when Jesus died and the curtain was torn in two? What does it mean? Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we... Hey, listen to this this morning with great attention as if it applies to you. I know it's written to Hebrews, but this applies to us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, by the new way, the living way, that he opened for us through the curtain. Oh, wait, there's a new curtain? Right, the curtain that is through his flesh. His flesh. You say, I want access to God. You have to go through Christ. His flesh is the curtain. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Go back if you would, Hebrews chapter 4. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, kind of the same concept. Verse number 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. Do you think, well, God just doesn't know what it's like to be human. Yes, he does. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Because of verse 15, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Did you catch it? Draw near to the throne of grace. And what do you get there? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Write this down. When Jesus died on the cross, he opened up a brand new way of access to God. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We have a new way of access to God that is through the veil of Christ and his blood. So literally, anybody can go to God now. You say anybody, anyone who's a believer in Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, 
you have access to God at any point. And that's why, as we go back to Romans 5, verse number 2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In which we stand. Guys, because you have access to God, you have access to grace. You remember what grace is? You remember that? If I were to ask you to define grace, the theologians tell us grace. Oh, yeah, that's that unmerited. You remember what unmerited means? You say, oh, yeah, my nephew got a merit badge in the Boy Scouts. Great. He earned it, right? He earned that. Grace is the unmerited, unearned favors, favors of God. It's when God gives good things, when God does good things to his people. Why? No reason. God, why did you do that for them? No reason. I just gave it to them. God, why did you save them? Why are they not going to hell? Because I just gave them. But what did they do for it? They just received it. I gave it for free. But that's only the beginning. See the phrase in verse 2? Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I'm not going to go into this a lot. Can I tell you? That phrase in verse 2, the grace in which we stand, it points to the believer. If you're a believer in Christ, you have what's called eternal security. Eternal security. You say, Jeff, are you one of those preachers? You really believe that once saved, always saved bit? Are you one of those guys? Listen carefully to how I'm going to say it. Once a person is truly saved, I'm not saying everybody in a few minutes that raises their hand. I'm not saying everyone who raises their hand is going to have eternal life. I'm telling you every person who's ever put their faith in Jesus receives eternal life. Yes, once you're truly saved, you will always be saved. Why? Because the same grace of God that saved you in the beginning keeps you saved. It's not up to you. You didn't save yourself in the beginning and you will not keep yourself saved. Anyone who thinks I'm keeping myself saved, that reeks of of performance, man-based religion, man-focused religion. That will send you to hell. Yes, once you're saved. Why? Because he says it's the grace in which we stand. You know what? I can never even taste hell. I'll never see it. I'll never taste it. Not for three seconds. Wouldn't want to. I don't live in fear of it. Why? I have peace with God and I have grace. I have access to grace. I am standing in grace. I began in grace. It is grace throughout. It's the grace of God. But is that all he's talking about? We have access to God and because of that we have access to grace. Have you guys picked up yet? There's a spiritual discipline. It's a basic fundamental of the Christian life. What are we talking about this morning? You're thinking of it? A basic, fundamental, discipline, opportunity of the Christian life. We have access to God through Christ, by faith. And when we use that access to God, we have access to all of the graces, all of the favors of God that are for no reason. What am I talking about? Somebody say it. No one knows. Prayer, thank you. Prayer. You're like, oh, we're talking about, is that what we've been talking about this whole time? Hey, listen, if you're a brand new Christian, I know we have some in our church. If you're a brand new Christian, you say, Jeff, we haven't really gone over prayer. It kind of sounds like it's important. Yeah. Listen, I don't say that so that you go home feeling like, oh, I got to pray. I got to pray. I got to make God happy. Hey, prayer's for you. I'm talking about something that's for you, something God's given to us. If you want on the side, say, Jeff, can you give me a 45-second crash course on how to pray? I would tell you to write this down. You pray through Christ. You ever heard the people say, and in Jesus' name? Okay, that's not a little stamp, a verbal stamp. There, God, you got to do it. I did the in Jesus' name phrase. It's an attitude. 
It's honestly, you begin your prayer, God, I have no business talking to you. This is the most exclusive place in the world. I get to go where no one in the Old Testament except a high priest. Now, Moses did have that face-to-face thing. I get to talk to you. I know it's not me. I've trusted Christ and, and his righteousness. Go through Christ by faith. Honest, write that word faith down. You say, any pointers on prayer? Through Christ, by faith, according to verse number two, you have to really believe that God's, but I don't feel like he's hearing me. Faith says, God, I know you're hearing me whether I feel anything or not. Can I add this word? Go humbly. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble according to James 4. And would you write the word thankfully? How? How do I need to go to God? Go through Christ by faith, boldly according to the book of Hebrews, but go humbly, boldly, humbly. I, I'm, somehow you can do both. I'm going to go boldly and yet humbly, God. I have no business talking to you, but you said I can, so I'm coming. You've called me to this. You, Romans 5 says I had this opportunity. I want to take advantage of it and go thankfully. The Bible says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And when you do that, ladies and gentlemen, according to Romans 5, verse number 2, some translations use the word, you have an introduction into grace. You have an access. It's talking about something also, not just saved. You have an access to everything you ever need. Christian, I'm talking to you right now. I'm talking to you. What needs do you have? What do you need? What do you need this week? I thought about some here. Recently, I preached somewhere. And six folks raised their hand that they got saved. And so as I was following up, two or three, I think, really got saved how I would think of this one-time thing. But some, I think, were confused because, oh, yeah, I needed to get some things right with God. I've been away from him for a little while. Can I tell you something? If you're here and you struggle with that and you think you, like, get saved every month and I'm praying that prayer again and, yeah, I got saved again. Can I tell you something? Here's the grace you need. You say, what grace do I need? You need to go to God and say, Lord, would you settle this once and for all? I'm not getting saved every time. Lord, I'm going to stop asking you to save me. Now, when sin creeps in my life and I feel like our fellowship is not what it should be, I'm going to claim 1 John 1, 9, but I'm going to stop this nonsense. And Lord, would you save me again? Jeff's leading me in the prayer again. And so I'm getting saved. You need the grace of God that says, settle it one time. You only get saved once. The Bible says you must be born again. It never says you must be born again and again and again. One time. Someone this morning in this group, you need courage. There's a demand of life, and it's daunting, and you need strength, and you need peace. I know that because that's me sometimes. He's got it. Somebody here, you're in a difficult trial. You don't see the end of it, so here's what you need. God, for whatever reason, you have this trial. I need patience, patient endurance, which verse 4, 3 and 4 is going to end up talking about. We'll get to that next time. Some of you say, it's not just a difficult situation I got a difficult person and you know what you need here's what you need you need long suffering God I need long suffering with this person I'm in a relationship it's hard it's difficult I can't do it he has it some of us many of us you're like me every week God I have decisions to make some of you have like one big big decision you're like I don't want to mess it up God I need some wisdom he's got the wisdom some need victory over sin I'll tell you something An unbeliever 
doesn't have access to any of the things that I just said. You're like, well, they can pray. Write this down. An unbeliever can pray, but God will not receive their prayer. You say, God doesn't hear their prayer. God hears everything. I'm telling you, God does not receive their prayer. You say, why not? Because they don't have access to God through Christ. Why? They don't have the relationship. Literally, an unbeliever, if you're here today, you say, well, I pray a lot. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ and received salvation by faith, then you've just been saying words... I hate to put it to you, and I don't mean this in a mean way. You are going life alone. But a Christian, you have access. My question is, do you use that access? It's there. Number three. The justified, notice my word here, can. You say, well, you're adding to the scriptures, Jeff. That's not what verse number two says. I'm not harming the scripture. I fully believe this is exactly what Paul is saying. The justified can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse number two again says, Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I don't want to scare you, but really this is kind of the best one of the three. You're like, what? Yeah. I'm not going to belabor it today. But this is, in a lot of ways, the other two kind of been filtering to this. Christian, listen carefully. If you are a Christian, the Bible promises, you need to listen, you will fully experience the glory of God. That will happen. Now, that doesn't move the needle of your emotions. You're like, okay, great, got it. You know why it didn't move the needle of your emotions? Because you don't know what it means. You know why I live the way I do sometimes? Because I don't know what this phrase means. You're like, then tell us what it means. I can't tell you fully. Let me tell you who could. Paul knew what that phrase. He's like, hey, Christian, you, you know what you have? You know what justification does for you in this life? Right, I'm going to get to go to heaven. But in this life, you have hope in the glory of God. And because of that, you can rejoice. Oh, good. Needle bumped. Ooh, okay, good. We don't understand what it means, but Paul sure did. You say, why do you think Paul did? A little-known event that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I think is a huge, it's one of the main things in the New Testament. Paul says, whenever he wrote 2 Corinthians, he points back to something that happened 14 years before he wrote that, I believe before he wrote Romans. Y'all know what he, some of you already know what he's talking about? He says, 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, but he says, I know of a man, he's talking about himself, who was able to go to the third heaven. Paul was able to go to the third heaven. I'm going to tell you, that event ruined him. Say, ruined him? Ruined him! Forever having affection for this life again. He could never have affection. I'm going to tell you, not a day, not an hour would go by, but that he knows what he saw. It's real. We hear it as just words on a page, and Jeff seems really excited today. You might not get anything out of it. The Lord kind of put just a touch of it in me this week. It's real. 
We can rejoice because we have hope in the glory of God. It dominated Paul. I want to tell you something. I got saved when I was nine years old. I want to tell you why. You know why I got saved when I was nine? I didn't want to go to hell. That's me. And I'm not the only one. There's others of us in here. You say, dude, that's exactly why I got saved. I was nine years old. I can't remember if I had the I can't help it. You're like, what's that? Were you, <laughs> hyperventilate, right? But man, I was tore up inside. I could, I'm going to hell. And, and I, I, I was fearful for Monday, Tuesday. Man, by Wednesday night, God, just please save me. I didn't know all what I was doing. I just put my faith and trust in Christ. Man, that night changed everything. I'm no longer God's enemy. I became God's friend and God's child that he will bless now. And oh, he's going to bless in the future. Changed everything. Most people are like me. Yeah, I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. What Paul is describing here, yes, that fear, that urgency of hell, that's a powerful motivator. Paul is talking about an even more honorable motivational factor, and that's this, hope of the glory of God. Paul's saying, if you don't get saved because you don't want to go to hell, get saved because you get to experience the glory of God fully. So still, like Jeff Stills, man, you seem like you're kind of excited. I don't really know what it is. What is the glory of God? I can't tell you. All I would say is this, the shortest way possible. It's everything about God himself unfiltered. Every attribute of God unfiltered. I'm going to experience it one day. That will happen As sure as I'm standing here right now wearing these black shoes, more sure than I'm standing here wearing these black shoes, I am going to experience the full glory of God. The Bible says in John 1, 18, no one's ever seen God. That's what the Bible says. 2,000 years ago that was written. It's true. I'm thinking back to Exodus chapter 33, verse number 20. Moses makes this request, God, I don't want to lead these people. You brought us out of Egypt, that's great, but I don't want to lead all these people. They're not great people. They're obstinate, man. They're hard to lead people. I'm not doing it if you don't go. I want to know that you're going with us. Show me your glory. You know what, Paul, what God tells to Moses? Exodus 33, verse 20, he says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Those of you who read the Bible are like, that sounds contradictory. That John 1.18, no one's ever seen God. You can't see my face. You can't see me and live. That sounds contradictory. Because Moses did see God. And, and the elders of Israel, they go partially up to Mount Sinai and they see God. And Isaiah the prophet, he has this vision of God in the temple. He sees God. And Peter, James, and John, they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, who is God, is glorified in their midst. Paul, on the road to Damascus, sees the glorified Christ. He sees this third heaven. So the Bible, apparently, John wasn't up to scale when he wrote chapter 1, verse number 18. He didn't know what the rest of the Bible was saying. Study it. Here's what you'll find. Two or three things. The Bible doesn't contradict. What all those people saw was a veiled Manifest, can I say an extremely veiled manifestation of God? Can I add something to that? Read their responses and it was almost always the same. Almost always the same. Moses hid his face. He's in the cleft of a rock. God says, all right, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I can't do your full request. I'm going to put you over there. I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to walk by and I'm going to remove my hand and you'll get to see my hinder parts. And Moses does that and it's like, whoa, he just looks down. 
And he comes down off the mountain and his face is shining. Everybody's like, well, we can't even look at you because you've looked at God and like put something on you, man. I'm talking about something. Last night the lightning was flashing. I looked out and I thought, that is nothing compared to the glory of God. Moses hides his face. The elders, they look down and there's a description of God's feet. Really? That's what they saw. Isaiah, but there was smoke. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. I'm unclean. Whoa, he's like, man, I can't handle this. Paul was blinded. Guys, what I'm trying to tell you today is if we could roll back the curtains and get an unfiltered view of God, we couldn't live. But if he was to filter it and veil it down, you'd be overwhelmed. And you live all day and you live all week and you don't think about that. It's coming. If you've ever put your faith in Christ, everything changed because of that moment when I was a nine-year-old boy. It's all stemming from there. Revelation 21. Would you go there very quickly? I want, kind of, I want you to actually see it. It'll be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, look at Revelation 21. <clears throat> Revelation 21. We love this passage, right? Verse number one. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, the next to the last chapter. Look at the first four verses. John, who's seeing a vision of the future, is writing it. What will happen, here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, this one, had passed away. And the sea, there's no more. There'll be no oceans and seas in that one. And I saw the holy city. It's called the New Jerusalem. What'd you see? It's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How's that? Very special detail. Very intentional. Everything to do a certain point, to meet a certain need, to have an effect. Here's the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. Verse number 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne. That would be God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And we all love verse 4, don't we? Hey, do you know verse 4 is true? Have you looked at this lately? Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This week in this congregation, there's been many tears shed. Like, really, Jeff, who is it? I don't know, but I promise you, this week, in this, some of you right now are like, that was me. Could be grief, could have been loneliness, could have been worry, could have been fear. Verse number four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. No more dying. Neither shall there be mourning, not mourning, noon, evening, M-O-U-R, mourning, sorrow. There'll be no more sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. Let that sink in. Never again pain. Why? For the former things have passed away. That's coming. You say, Jeff, that's the glory that we're talking about. Yes, verse number four. No, that's not the glory. Verse number four is only the byproduct of what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. Because wherever God is, there is no pain and sorrow and death and crying. All those things are gone and it's all remade way better than this. The glory is coming. What I'm describing is a guaranteed thing for the child of God. If you're here today, you're Christian, I'm promising you. How do you know, Jeff? How can you be so sure? Write it down. Jesus' prayer. John 17, we have the prayer of Jesus 
John 17, verse one verse out of there. Look at verse 24. Here's Jesus prayed this one time. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, I want them that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. Did you catch that? Jesus prayed, I want the ones you gave to me, I want them to be with me and I want them to see the glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Why do I know it's going to happen? Jesus' prayer. By the way, Jesus' prayers get answered. That's going to happen. You say, why do you believe it's going to happen? God's plan. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 29. For those, you say, Jeff, how do you know it's going to happen? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He predetermined a destination that they would be conformed to the image of his son. By the way, there's a hint. Can't preach on it. Part of the glory of God is that we get rid of these bodies the way they are now and we're totally remade and we're made in the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll never sin again and that's going to be a great day. I'll never one more time have to say, God, 1 John 1, 9, again, me, no more of that. I'll be glorified. You say, see, we become Jesus? No, but we get his likeness. Why? Why is God doing this? In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. God has a plan, a purpose that Jesus will have many brothers and sisters. The very next verse gives us God's promise. Verse number 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called for me, June 1979. He called Those he predestined, before he called me in 79, he had already predestined. He had already foreknown me. He foreknew me and then predestined I would be in the image of Christ. 1979, he called. And those whom he called, do you have a day that you remember that happened in your life? Those whom he called, he also justified. He declared me righteous, 1979. When did he declare you righteous? And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Guaranteed. Has to happen. Romans chapter 5, verse number 2. The Bible says to you, Christian, if you've been justified, you should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that's coming. What Paul is saying is those thoughts, that reality should wash through our minds on a regular basis, and when it does, it should cause us excitement. But what I find is, unfortunately, most of us live defeated, We're in a panic. You know why? Two reasons. We don't take advantage of our access to God and His grace. And we don't rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know why? Because we'll go a whole day without thinking about the glory of God in heaven one day. And that's why we live defeated and in a panic. We'll go a whole 24 hours. And as I'm saying that, somebody here is going, that's me. And others of you are going, 24 hours, nothing. I'll go a whole week without thinking about this. That's why we live the way we do. We don't access what we have, the current blessings of God. Hey, guys, God is serious about your eternal life, Christian. He's serious. So serious. He wants you to already in this life start enjoying the earthly blessings now. I started a long time ago talking about saved and unsaved. Can I tell you something? If you're not a Christian, you ought to become a Christian. You know why? Because this life, it's better for a Christian. But when we factor in 
the eternal existence of the saved in heaven and the eternal existence of those who just refuse to put their faith in Christ, they'll go to a place of torments, lake of fire. That is really going to happen. Man, that makes it a no-brainer. You need to be 100% sure, do I have a Bible reason why I know I'm at peace with God? And if you don't have that, I'm going to invite you. Do it. Why? Escape hell. Escape hell. But can I tell you something? More than that, do it because you'll get to experience the glory of God. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? I'm not going to elongate this. I really am not. I only want to do two things. I want to talk first to us as a whole, and I want to get your response this morning. And I want your reaction, if you would. No one looking around. Because of the urgency of eternity and the difference that being saved or unsaved makes in your existence in this life. I wonder who. Here's, let's just start right here. You say, Jeff, boy, I'm not perfect, but I know 100% there's a time in my life where I put my faith in Christ. And because of that, I've been justified by God. I have a Bible reason why I know I'm going to heaven. If that is you, by the way, don't raise your hand if you're not, not sure. But if that's you, would you slip your hand up and hold it up just for a moment? I'm going to look around. You're like, I know this for certain. Anyone, several. Praise the Lord. One's got two hands up. Praise the Lord. That is a great way to live. Just as brief, I'm not going to pressure you. Can I ask, is there anyone here by the same sign, by raising your hand, say, Jeff, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I'm not even asking if you're willing to do anything about it today or not, but just you say, hey, pray for me. I'm just not sure. Is that you? Would you raise your hand? Anybody here this morning? Would you pop your hand up very quickly? Anyone? You say, I am unsure about this. Can I just say, something's not adding up because many did not raise their hand earlier and not raising their hand on either thing. So I'm not sure what that is. If I can help you, let me know. No one raised their hand. So Christian, here's what I want us to do. Very simple conclusion today. You can deal with God if you want the altar. It's not even a necessarily come forward invitation. Two quick points. Ready? How's your prayer life? I promise. I'm not saying that to guilt trip you. I'm not saying that to put something on your spiritual to-do list. I promise that's not it. It's, it's a benefit. It's for you. It's not doing something for God prayers for us can I be more specific how was your prayer life life this last week was your was your life this past week could it be described as I was using my access to God I'm a Christian I know I have eternal life Jesus has justified me did you use your access to God have you approached God this week have you asked him for things You've been going through Christ by faith, humbly, thankfully. Real simple. If it, you say, Jeff, it hadn't been what it should be. Hey, is there somebody here today? Not going to ask you to raise your hand, just inside. You say, it's not what it used to be. It's not what it used to be. Then just real practical in your own, own heart and mind. What's the best time for you to start doing this? Again, not a to-do list, not to tell Jeff, for you, because you need access to the graces of God. He has it. He's ready to give it. You have access to God. 
when's the best time to do that and where is the best place for you to do that quietly really think about it don't just go another week like well it's not good and then next week it's not good this week do something about it and lastly Christian I want you to actually answer this question in your mind what is your biggest concern right now what's your biggest concern is it financial is it physical is it relational what's your biggest concern one thing you got it now take a moment and in your mind put your hands around that thing on the edge whether it's words whatever it may be put your hands around the edge of that kind of like parentheses and then take it and properly put it in perspective of the guarantee that you will experience the glory of God and ask yourself this that thing that is the number one concern in my life what will it matter in 100 years what will it matter and once you put it in perspective then you take it in your mind and you lay it at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's got the shoulders for it and say I can't bear this I'm coming for grace and I want to see everything in an eternal perspective let me see a glimpse of what Paul saw the glory of God